Welcome to another episode of Complete Developer Podcast, the podcast by coders for coders about all aspects of creating your best life as a developer. I'm Will, the accomplished developer and aspiring software architect. And I'm Beach, the journeyman developer sharing my journey in development. From cowboy coders to ninjas and everything in between, the development community has a lot of different archetypes associated with it. These different personalities and personality types can work together or cause strife in your life, depending on how well you can relate and work with them. In this episode, we'll take a look at a few of these archetypes, talking about their strengths, weaknesses, and how best to work with or manage them. But before we get started, Will, what have you been fighting this week? Well, I uh, on Friday, we had the marketing kickoff meeting for the second book. Uh, it's going to come out sometime around the end of April or early May. Um, we're still trying to get a definite date down, but we're kind of lining up things like podcast interviews and all that. So I've got a ton of work to do on there. Thankfully, I don't have a, you know, my social calendar is not exactly rocking right now because of the whole, you know, Corona thing. So I think I'll be able to manage it. But yeah, I'm just buried at the moment between work and this and uh, just trying to get, you know, like it's the beginning of my effective year. You know, the way that I do things is like it starts April 1st. Mm -hmm. And so like I have a bunch of stuff that, you know, was prepped and ready to kick off. And a lot of it I can't do right now. Uh, But the stuff I can, I'm working on. And so, yeah, I've been just just going solid. I think the last time I had lunch during a workday. It was like a normal lunch where I could just stop and actually eat was, I want to say it was last Monday and it's Tuesday now. So it wasn't yesterday. It was, you know, a week ago um, between that and, and meetings for work. So yeah, I don't really have anything exciting except just a crap ton of work. So how about you? So um, Final Fantasy VII Remake came out last Friday for PS4. It was Good Friday. So I actually had the day off work. I asked if I could work that day because I had a lot to do and was told, no, I needed a break. And they're not, they weren't letting anybody work because we've all been working so much extra. So I decided that morning uh, to purchase it after spending some time working on the church's website. We, uh, we were using this uh, thing called church online platform to stream to the website, but they are a bit overloaded. And since it's free service, um, like they're trying to catch up, but with so many churches going online these days, they've just been just their bandwidth has just not been there, um, especially during regular service times. So I was setting it up so that we could, uh, I was putting it in an iframe basically so that we could have the service via restream through that. And so uh, getting that all set up and stuff and the sizing because restreams, embed it's a it's in beta and it's not built for for mobile responsiveness yet so like there what what's interesting is the way it works is it uses the places you're streaming to so like we're streaming to facebook so it uses facebook stream so when you click on it it goes into like this it looks really nice but it's the when you haven't clicked on it yet or when it's not streaming that it just I was trying to get that to look at least somewhat decent um, and playing around with that. I got it to working. It looks all right. It's not 
the prettiest uh, to really get it to look the way I would like it to look. I'm going to have to write some custom CSS. But uh, anyway, the game coming out on Friday, I kind of figured there might not be many of them around, especially with people not being able to get out and do much. So uh, I called around, found out that the GameStop in Shelbyville, which is about 10 minutes away from me, had one copy, but they weren't letting people in the store. So when I called, um, the manager said what I would have to do is go online and purchase it there and I could pick it up at the store. But because it was someone who, like the store didn't have it registered as theirs because it was someone who had pre-ordered and not bought it. So it wasn't like online at the store. So I had to, he said, get a gift card and then call when I got to the door. And I thought, well, that's a little sketch, but all right, whatever. I really kind of want the game. Maybe it was his personal copy that he'd bought. He's just going to sell it to me. Whatever. I don't care. I want a copy of the game. So I went to Walmart, bought a Visa gift card. Yeah. He meant a GameStop gift card, (laughs) which is a lot less sketch than I was thinking. (laughs) Let's just be honest. (laughs) Um, Anyway, I got to I got to give a shout out uh, to Adam, the manager there at the Shelbyville GameStop, because he he did. He went out of his way to try and make it work for me. Um, and uh, turns out that Walmart gift cards like the Visa gift cards take 24 hours to activate. Oops. It does not say that on the outside packaging of the gift card. I was quite frustrated. Yeah. I was I was I was very very upset. I went around to several other stores looking for GameStop gift cards and nobody had any. Yeah, I think there's probably some reasons for that with the gift cards just so that they aren't used for things like, you know, money laundering or they aren't stolen and somebody activates a bunch of them and then leaves. Yeah. Probably, but still it's it was very frustrating. It it's not that it took 24 hours to activate that frustrated me, it was that it was not on the outside packaging. Yeah. I would not have bought it had I known that. But there was no indication. That's where the frustration came in. And so I eventually came home and just bought a digital copy and downloaded it. Surprisingly, for a 100 gig download, it did not take very long. I mean, I know I have fast internet, but it just, it was snappy. Um, So... Uh, game is a lot of fun too, by the way. Um, you, you remember Final Fantasy VII? Yeah. You play the Final Fantasy games? Yeah. Um, I played the first one, and was it three? You know, on the SNES, and then I think I played two, and then I played seven when it came out on the PC, mm-hmm. and that's the ones I've played. Yeah, seven was was definitely my favorite. Uh, it's been a while since I've played it. It's been a while since I bought a game on release day. The last game I bought on release day was Halo 3. So funny story behind this one. Jason and I had gone to the movies the night that it came out, like, uh, or the night before it came out. And so on the drive back to his place, we saw a line outside of GameStop. It was like 1130, 1145. And so we decided like we were going to go back to his place and play video games. We decided to go into Walmart and get some snacks and laugh at the people that were standing in line at Walmart because they had like set up this huge thing with all this stuff there and we're expecting people to be dressed up and all this stuff. Yeah, we walked in. No one was there. 
there was no line whatsoever at Walmart to buy the game. We just walked up, bought it, and left. <laughs> nice. <laughs> yeah. Uh, Usually you can find something to laugh at in Walmart, though. I mean, realistically. That's true. That's true. That's true. Um, though, yeah. We we, uh, we went back to Jason's place and uh, and played it that night. I've been thinking a lot about him lately. Yeah, I mentioned a little while ago, it's sort of like, we're in that weird time between like the anniversary of his death and his birthday. And it's just like this time of year, I'm always thinking a lot about him. Even though she never met him, Amanda is actually going to help me celebrate his birthday in a couple of weeks with uh, pizza, Coke in Oreos. So that's going to be fun. Yeah. I've actually thought about him a little bit here lately just because, you know, with uh, cystic fibrosis, like what's going on right now would be extremely scary for him. Mm. You know? Oh yeah. It would. Speaking of what's going on right now, developer Launchpad went really well this past weekend. We had a few people show up to our online meeting. Yeah. And I thought about it after the fact. We might have had more, but it was Easter weekend. So uh, I just want to say, guys, check us out on meetup.com if you want to attend online. Uh, You don't have to live in the Nashville area to join us. And it was kind of like a live podcast, but with people asking questions and a bit more discussion back and forth. So that that was a lot of fun. But uh, with all that said, let's go ahead and get on into Book Club. So in Remote Work, The Complete Guide, Chapter 8, I talk about what to do if you run an organization or a team and you want to allow remote work. As a lot of people have found out recently, it is not as simple as just sending everybody home and hoping that the VPN holds up. It completely changes your entire workflow. It changes the way that you approach other team members. It changes the way that you arbitrate disagreements. It changes the way that you hire, the way that you fire, the way that you deal with security. Like all the things get changed all at once. And so you have to have kind of a framework for slowly rolling out uh, remote work. And so I kind of break this down in this chapter essentially with eight stages, you know, starting at remote hostel, which is, you know, your company allows no remote work whatsoever. You uh, judge people's productivity by whether their butts are in their seats and, you know, that sort of thing. And going all the way up to stage seven, where the organization is truly remote um, and has practices around making sure that team members can work well together, uh, you know, bringing them in periodically, but that remote is first. And, and just kind of how to transition through those stages and what selling points you have at each at each point. So, for instance, if your organization allows remote work under certain conditions but doesn't do it on a recurring basis, how do you pitch that to higher ups? How do you how do you construct your arguments? What things you need to be watching for that are going to be a problem when you transition from here to the next stage? Uh, so we'll have a link to that chapter in the show notes. Who's talking to us? We have an email from Tom. He says, hey guys, I love the show and have gone back and listened to the older ones too. I've heard you use the term managing up a few times and wondered if you could give more detail on how to do that. My supervisor is a really good programmer, if a bit old school, but he can get into the weeds on things, especially when we're integrating with an older system or older part of the code. Uh, It's to the point where we spend hours just sitting around talking about it and not ever making a decision or actually doing anything. Even our manager is getting frustrated. 
how do I get him to stay focused on the problem at hand and on doing what we're asked to do when he is my supervisor? Thanks, Tom. Yeah, this is a tough one. I didn't get in here whether they actually like the supervisor or not. Because obviously there's a lot of nasty things you could do in this situation. Uh, one of which is try in a meeting with their supervisor to get them to go off the rails and make them look like an idiot, right? Um, if they're, there's certain kinds of personalities that really like to try to throw curveballs into everything and do this to sabotage their underlings. And that's how you deal with those. I don't want to suggest that obviously as a first go, right? Like you don't start a fight if there's not a fight. Mm-hmm. However, you are going to have to get them to land the plane. Uh, there's a few different ways you can do this. One, don't ever go into a meeting with them where it's open-ended. Um, because if they have time to talk for an hour, they're going to talk for an hour. They're going to fill the space with whatever crap they have. So go, hey, I've got 15 minutes before my next meeting. Can you explain this to me real quick? Mm-hmm. That should help kind of rein that stuff in. And if it doesn't, you've got an excuse to be somewhere else. So you can also time it like with lunch or with something else. You just got to be kind of careful how you do that. You probably can't force them to, um, you know, stay on topic, but you can ask a lot of questions, go, Hey, can we go back to this other thing and just keep dragging them back to the thing that you're actually trying to get answered? Uh, Because it sounds like this is one of those people that just sort of goes off on the rails and, you know, there's, there's something else going on there, but you want to keep them on, on task. Mm Mm-hmm. The other thing, you know, speaking of something else going on, is that people like this typically have something else going on. Um, it, it may be something like they're distracted with their home life. They may have interpersonal problems in the office. They may have a lack of confidence and want to show out how smart they are and what they know. Mm-hmm. And so if you address that, you get rid of the other problem anyway. But the thing is, is you can't exactly address their problems at home, especially not now because you can't even go over there without Karen yelling at you for being out for unnecessary travel. (laughs) But you could you could call Karen and say that you saw this person's spouse outside. So it's it's interesting because I've worked with people who really knew like I work in an area where we have a lot of really, really old code and a lot of really, really new code. And so I've worked with people who have been around for a while. They really know the code base very well. They really understand it, but they also know all the little nuances and aren't the best at discerning when to say, when to talk about the nuances versus when to go, all right, yeah, we can make it work. And that can just be really frustrating, especially if it's like you said, you're your supervisor. And so you can't just like, it's, it's harder to go, all right, I can't talk to you about this or get to the point when it's someone who you report to. Yeah, because it'll backfire. Yeah, so, well, uh, hey, Tom, thanks so much. We appreciate the question. That was a great one. And uh, we're definitely going to add managing up to our Kanban board of ideas. Send us another email to waterbottle at completedeveloperpodcast.com with your contact information because we've got a complete developer water bottle just for you. Guys, if you'd like your very own Complete Developer Water Bottle, leave us a review on iTunes or comment on the website or any of our social media. We post all of our episodes to LinkedIn, Twitter, and Facebook. We're also on Instagram and Tumblr. Just recently posted some stuff on Instagram. Well, recently as in recently when we're recording this. Probably post some more, uh, trying to throw out some uh, 
some stuff that we're doing while we're we're here in quarantine. Or you can join us uh, anytime via Slack by going to slack.completedevelopernetwork.com. Your advertisement could be here. If you like the show and would like to advertise on here, send us an email to adverts at completedeveloperpodcast.com. We have short-term, long-term, and other sponsorship opportunities. Reach out to us and let us help you reach the people you are serving. As programmers, we tend to be a rather interesting bunch. Some might even call us peculiar. Developers tend to have our own culture and even subcultures within the development community. If you go attend a polyglot or regional conference, you'll see many of the various subcultures within development getting together to grow, learn, and enjoy the company of like-minded individuals. Within the community of developers are several archetypes that you're going to see. Rarely will you find someone who is completely a particular one, but you'll more likely notice traits uh, in the different people you interact with, some stronger than others. And while researching the different archetypes of developers, we broke them down into three groupings, coding styles, knowledge expression, and general personality. Uh, This is the first of three episodes talking about the types of programmers you'll meet in your career. And it's going to focus on the various coding styles that you'll encounter. So before we get into this, let's talk a little bit about what an archetype actually is, you know, without going just full on into young, you know, just to kind of get the idea in place. Think of it as almost like a design pattern for personality. It's to solve a particular kind of problem and doesn't work well in certain other kinds of problems. Yeah, and these are, um, like we said, they're, a particular person isn't going to be all of this, though you may find the these traits. They're like, they're traits that you see in people, uh, almost personified traits. Yeah, it's, it's aspects of a human being, not a hierarchical ontology. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Now, in this episode we'll discuss each of these coding style archetypes. And we'll talk about their strengths, kind of where where they shine, and their weaknesses. Then we'll finish up each one with how to best work with them or manage them if you find them on your team. And the first one is the cowboy or cowgirl coder. Uh, For simplicity's sake, we're going to call them the cowboy because um, cow people is what you run into in Walmart, and that's not the same thing. Wow. So, hey, you've been to the chips aisle lately? Come on. So cowboy coders are a force of nature who can code two or three times faster than anyone else. They typically have a degree in computer science and believe that clean code and best practices do not apply to them, or at least don't apply to them evenly. (laughs) Yeah, which is why they can code so fast. You know, they're they're not trying to create clean code. They are trying to solve the problem, slinging together anything they possibly can. Yeah, and, and these people are great. Um, th- they can be great to work with, but there are problems, right? Uh, the attitude that refactoring is kind of a luxury for city slickers. A lot of times the cowboy coders code is spaghetti and kind of stinks. Smells like uh, several nights on the trail eating only beans, per Beach's words. Yeah, um, I I thought of that when I was writing this last night because it was just, you know, it was sort of a funny way of thinking about it because their their code is going to be all over the place. 
it's not going to follow any kind of pattern, any kind of design because they're all they're doing is they're getting out there and they're just slinging stuff to get it working. I mean, well, they don't write code or design code. They accrete. Yeah. Code. I mean, they're, they're really good if you're trying to get a proof of concept out. Yeah. Or a quick and dirty patch because stuff is on fire and you're just trying to get some space to, to work. Mm -hmm. Um, Mm -hmm. They are extremely handy. Like that's the people you go get. Um, yeah. You don't do them, you know. You get you don't get them involved um, if you have something that needs to be stable over the long term with a bunch of other people working on it. Yeah, cowboy coders are best on projects where deadlines are more important than anything else. If you have to get it done and you have to get it done fast, these people can sling code out there. It will be ugly. It'll be nasty. It will be unmaintainable, unscalable. But you can come back and rewrite later when you have time. You got to get something out right now. Yeah. So it's really handy for early stage startups, those kind of things where it's just, hey, we're trying to get money in so that we can eat ramen noodles for the next six months and really build this thing. Mm-hmm. You know, so again, there's strengths, there's weaknesses. No. So speaking of strengths and weaknesses, the next one is the perfectionist. Um, and a lot of developers seem to try to fall into this archetype. And it doesn't really go all that well for them because they aren't aware of the, the weaknesses. Uh, the perfectionist is the polar opposite to the cowboy coder. Um, their aim is to write the best code ever. Mm-hmm. So you can think of, you know, you get the, the grubby guy that's out here, you know, dealing with cattle. And then you've got the guy that is the futures share seller person for those cows. <laughs> uh, yeah. Right. That guy's in a suit and, you know, probably, you know, extremely clean, you know, well-dressed, everything has to be just so. Mm -hmm. Yeah. The, um, while the cowboy treats code like cattle, the perfectionist treats code like their pets or even worse, like their own child. It is, they are really into it. It is, they put all of, all of themselves into this and building like the perfect thing. And they can even get confrontational and argumentative when they're asked to speed up the process or when told to build a less than optimal solution for the sake of time or money or something like that. Yeah, they tend to gold plate. Um, And so, you know, these people are, a lot of times they can be good architects after reality has seasoned them a little bit. Mm -hmm. They can also be the kind of person that lays out the design and figures out, hey, here's how all the pieces need to interact because they'll iterate over that. But what you don't want them to do is iterate over a working code base that you need to stay working Yeah. Um, because they will go plate the crap out of it and it'll sink. Mm-hmm. Uh, the thing with, with a perfectionist is if you give them limits. So if you do have limited resources, they work best when told the limitations up front and asked to find the best solution given those limitations. Right. Cause if you do that, then their perfectionism fits within that box. Yes. And they'll expand to fill that box. Yeah. Versus they're the whole like world. Like a gas. Yeah. <laughs> Which is <laughs> kind of like the way cowboy coders, I mean like there, there are some similarities honestly in the way that yeah. stuff gets done. It's just the they're both very iterative, but one of them is just throwing more crap at the wall to try to get stuff to stick and the other one is, you know, carving things with a very small chisel to get the shape they want. Mm-hmm. Yeah. 
So the next archetype that you're going to see is the caretaker. And the caretaker has been with the company for years, maybe even decades. So they know the code base inside and out, especially the older, more arcane areas. I mean, um, uh, our comment for this episode, uh, Tom, his supervisor, is a caretaker. Yeah. And, you know, again, these people matter, right? They have to keep the system running. That tends to be their priority. Um, as a result, they typically tend to be older. Uh, they tend to be more comfortable with outdated technology. Yeah. Um, and they spend a lot of their time maintaining legacy stuff. So they're really cautious about doing anything that might disrupt mm -hmm. the system. They will not do a large-scale refactor. Um, almost ever. No, they may have gotten stuck in a rut. Yeah, these are are the people who have have been around. They may have written parts of the system that they're maintaining, and they they know it. They know the processes. They know the business behind it inside and out. And so, when you have to integrate with that, or you know, you're writing something new that talks to an older system. They're the ones that you want to to have on your team for that. Yeah, they also tend to have gotten stuck in a rut, or you know, they might kind of have the whole golden handcuffs thing, uh, preventing them from trying new stuff. So, for instance, they may be working at a company where they were offered you know some share of ownership 15 years ago, and they're going to get mm -hmm. you know a couple hundred thousand dollars when the company sells. Right. That's a common way to keep the, you know, developers that really know the arcane stuff around is to do that. And then you can just basically keep them in place and pay them a low salary and keep them. Yeah. I, um, I had a coworker who was trying to get out of being a caretaker back when I very first started. Um, she had gotten like, she had gotten into development, like gone to school for computer science, gotten into development really got into the technology at the time, but got married, had kids, just found herself in a job doing the thing that she knew how to do and technology passed her by. And so when I came on, she was really trying to work her way up and, and learn the new stuff. She ended up leaving and uh, uh, ran into her not long ago and she's now a lead developer doing a little bit of new stuff, a little bit of old stuff. She actually found a job where it's like perfect for her because they have sort of a, they need someone who kind of knows the new stuff to help guide the developers working on that and kind of knows the old stuff to help guide the developers on that and can maybe step in when they need help. So like perfect fit for her. So just because I, the reason I say that is just because a caretaker may get stuck in a rut and they end up as a caretaker because of that doesn't mean they have to stay that way if they don't want to. Right. Now they may want to. I know people who do uh, VB.net and absolutely love it. I don't understand that, but there are people that I know who love doing VB.net and they have found jobs doing that and they're very happy. I've got a friend that still does VB6. No, yeah, that's right. I forget about that. Yeah. Yeah, a good friend. And he's, you know, he's gradually moving to .NET. Um, but yeah, he's comfortable and it, it runs his company. Mm -hmm. I, I will say that, you know, 
caretakers are very, very good for keeping a system stable, especially if it's critical Yeah, and the business doesn't change much. Like that's what you want. You don't want the 24 year old developer that wants to refactor the whole thing and rewrite it in JavaScript framework of the week. Yes. Whatever that happens to be. Like you want the guy that's completely comfortable saying, yep, this is COBOL. It still works. I don't care. Yeah. However, (laughs) um, you really have to be careful if you're in a situation with these people where you're trying to put them on a newer project or trying to integrate newer technology with their old stuff in a way that they feel threatened by um, or that might be a risk to them. Because a lot of these folks, frankly, are riding out to retirement, Mm -hmm. you know, assuming that they can maintain uh, this project until it's time for them to go retire. And, you know, honestly, if I was, if I was 64 and I was in that state, I wouldn't be going, Oh, I'm going to learn react and, you know, do this. If I'm ready to retire, I'm ready to retire. And that's probably what I would do too. So it's, it's not unreasonable. I know a couple of people who they, you know, they moved into positions basically being caretakers because they were, they were, kind of riding it out they're you know public sector employees and they just they wanted to ride it out to retirement and there was a need for someone to come in because the newer people coming like the the juniors coming in didn't really know the older system and so they needed someone who understood that older tech and so they brought brought them in um but i also know some who are close to retirement i think i've talked about one of my coworkers He's close to retirement and he is all about learning the new stuff because he just loves it. Yeah, and there's people like that too. Um, and it really yeah. takes both to drive it a does. system forward. And so it's like, you know, anything yeah. we say about anybody in this, you know, understand that we're seeing that there's positive and there's negative. It's not all mm-hmm. negative. It's just they got to be yeah. in the right place. Speaking of being in the right place, the very next uh, archetype we're going to talk about is the specialist. Now, the specialist is a developer who, rather than becoming a T-shaped developer, and we've we've had episodes on being becoming a T-shaped developer, has become more of a lowercase L shape, where they didn't get that broad top, you know, surface level understanding of a lot of different things and how they interact. They just did a deep dive into one area at the cost of being well-rounded. Right. So you'll you'll commonly see this, you know, one good example is a lot of data scientists, at Mm -hmm. least right now. They typically only code in Python. They tend to be really good at math. Uh, They really enjoy statistics and image manipulation. Yeah. Right. And they can do all that stuff in Python and it totally rocks. And they're very, very useful. Yeah. And I know several data scientists. I mean, like I'm getting a master's in data science. So I know several people in this area who have a background in math or statistics and learn Python to do the data science to manipulate the data. And that's all they learned it for. They, they don't have a desire to be a coder. They have a desire to manipulate data. Or I know some data analysts who did the same thing, learned some SQL and some Python to do that. Now I will say this about my master's program. Like we're learning a lot of computer science along with the data science. I think it's, you know, sort of depends on where you go. Yeah. But uh, yeah. And, and that's, that's the, the interesting thing is like you can 
you can specialize. The This archetype is not someone who has a general understanding of coding, may have coded for a while, and like you, you have a, a specialty that you do where you go in and, you know, help update older systems. and Yeah, and mine is, you know, honestly, about half of mine is more the psychology than it is the actual skill. Yeah. But yeah. It, but, um, but like you can have a specialty. Like when I first started, I was doing front-end, back-end, and database work, and now I primarily do API development. But that doesn't mean I can't do that. Like the specialist, though, is not like that. They didn't go, all right, I'm going to learn kind of a, a well-rounded amount and then dive into one particular area of interest, they only dove into that area of interest. Right, which does not describe me. Yeah, no, uh, not at I've all. Been all over the place. <laughs> um, it's just, you know, you do end up specializing as you get older and you get more seasoned just because there's certain stuff you like and certain things where you understand mm-hmm. how to fix the problems. Yeah. Now, another type of common specialist that you're going to run into is the security professional. Um, mm-hmm. They typically know all kinds of stuff, you know, weird minutia about security. They hack into systems for fun. Sometimes they have a little bit different take on ethics than you might think. <laughs> it's not necessarily bad, but it's there's some stuff they find unethical that probably wouldn't make you blink and vice versa. Yeah. Now, what's really funny about that, and um, when I was writing this, I had a particular conversation in mind back when I was in grad school for psychology. So my first time in graduate school, um, I was asked to speak about ethics because my minor was philosophy and ethics uh, and in undergrad. And so I was asked to speak um, at uh, an event um, about kind of like ethics and religious ethics and things like that. And I said something to my friends um, uh, that next week at school, and one of them said, you're like the most unethical person I know. And like, I, I, I was about to say something and my other friend who we were sitting there eating lunch together, she, without even giving me a chance says, no, BJ has a different set of ethics. He's actually very, very ethical. He, he follows his moral guidelines. They're just different from yours. Yeah. Of course, the Zodiac Killer. <laughs> Fair you know, enough, that. but you know, <laughs> I mean, you got to throw that out there. Yeah, well, you I know, was, I don't even know why I thought of the Zodiac Killer first. It's not like you're wearing a hoodie or anything, sunglasses. But um, yeah, I mean, it. They do definitely have a different take on a lot of stuff, and this is also really common among specialists as far as what they think is a good idea and what they think is a bad idea is very narrowly defined in a very particular niche. Um, and that's, that's okay. Um, specialists do really well if you put them on a very structured team where their role is defined and tasks are assigned by management. You do not want to put them on a scrum team where they get stuck in stuff that they're not good at, right? You, yeah. you throw them, you know, they are specialized. That's what they're there for. Let them do their specialty. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so if you're not familiar with the the concept of a scrum team, um, those are basically everyone is sort of equal on a scrum team. Yeah, and you do whatever shows up. Yeah, and so that does not work for a specialist. They, because they'll be asked to do things that they don't know how to do. They don't want to know how to do. Like it's it's one thing if you have someone like Will 
who has specialized in an area, but he's also got experience in other areas and enjoys doing most of them. Yeah, most of the different <laughs> things. Like there, there are things like no matter who, what team you put someone on, there's going to be things people don't like doing. But it's not you're not going to put Will on a Scrum team and him go, uh, I don't know how to do JavaScript. I only do Python. That's not Will. Yeah. Um, now you could turn that around. That might be a little bit more accurate. <laughs> it's actually, I mean, I've done some Python. I just can't stand the uh, the linguistic importance of the spacing. <laughs> drives me up the wall. Like, I just can't even. I have the same problem with YAML. Mm-hmm. Um, I just, I'm not not having it. <laughs> you that, know? that cracks me up because I that doesn't bother me at all. I like Python, um, but yeah. I like what I can do with it. I like what, yeah. it, what it will do. Like, I think Django, like, I thought that was really cool. I liked, uh, you know, playing around with that. But the language, I just couldn't get there. I, I couldn't get to where I could stand it. Mm-hmm. And it didn't matter what I did. Um, so the the next archetype we're going to talk about is one that uh, I tend to fall into a lot. And that is the rebel. They're also called the experimenter. And this is one of the most creative types of programmers. Now, that being said, like programmers in general, are we're a creative bunch. Y'all. We build things out of nothing. A lot of times, right? Castles in the sky. Yeah, basically. Um, so, in general, we we as a group are just a creative bunch of people. That said, the rebels are typically the ones who are going out and trying new things and building weird, unique things. They're they're constantly looking for newer and better frameworks, languages, coding practices. Um, like it, it depends on where their focus is. Like you could have a a rebel who is really into coding best practices and they're looking for what are the best of the best practices? What are the newer ones? What are the the ways to do this? Like, what can I learn? What are ones that I don't know about? How can I over-optimize? You know, like really like look at it and go, how can I break this process down the way that I approach it? You know, what could mm-hmm. I be doing differently to avoid certain kinds of, you know, certain whole classes of problems? Yeah. Uh, they tend to live by the motto, rules are meant to be broken. Um, and this can confuse and even frustrate other members of their team. Especially the caretakers. Because <laughs> it's like the, the, when the rebel goes in, it is like the caretaker is in charge of a garden and the rebel is in charge of a four-wheeler. Yes. <laughs> and that interaction is not pleasant. And the thing is, is it'll, it messes everybody else up in the team too, because those two will go head to head and everybody else feels like they have to be part of it because you, it's so extreme. You have to take sides. Mm-hmm. I've, I have seen that dynamic before. I imagine you have initiated that dynamic before. <laughs> um, I'm just going to throw that out there as something that I feel like has a pretty strong probability, you know, yeah. Um the the thing with the the rebels is you know get them working on on a positive solution. Like one of the things that I brought in was uh logging to the database. Like we we didn't really have that especially in our newer projects. And so like that was something I went out and researched and learned as much as I could about and brought that in. Rebels work best when they're asked to solve unique problems or find new ways of creating solutions. 
they tend to get bored and honestly suffer when tasked with maintaining legacy applications, even ones they wrote. Yeah, because it's already passed. It's like reading a book again. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, the best way I've heard Rebels described as is basically lock them in a room with the complete works of Frank Zappa and a 12 pack of beer and give them a problem. Yes. And leave them alone. Yes. <laughs> that sounds- and if you can just. That's pretty much it. I mean, because I was kind of like this when I was younger. That's amazing to me. Yeah, I, I was like this when I was younger, and then I started kind of, I grew out of it, I think, a lot. Just simply, I, I won't say that I entirely grew out of it. I think I have a lot of those aspects. It's just that they're applied in the interpersonal space more than in the coding space now. Because I realized that's where the problems I was seeing came from. Mm-hmm. But that said, like the having to maintain crappy systems, you know, like if you want to drive one of these people crazy, what you do is you make them repeat a process over and over again that they know is a waste of time and tell them they can't fix it. Mm -hmm. And what they'll end up doing is they'll fix it anyway. And they won't tell you. Yes, (laughs) That is so true. (laughs) Yeah. Um, And sometimes like there, some managers kind of get this and they, Mm -hmm. they actually set them up that way. I'll be honest Um, with you. My, my management, especially like the, the higher ups, they figured this out about me. And so like I get put on the, the newer stuff and like, I'm not the only one that ever gets put on the newer stuff, but they have me going out and all right, Hey, go figure out how to do this. And then pat and then teach everyone else and pass it on to someone so that you can go out and learn the next new thing. Well, and I think that's one of the other strengths that a rebel has is they're not afraid of blowing stuff up. True. Right. Like, so you could throw this guy into something new and or this guy or gal. Mm -hmm. And and when they run into something that they don't expect and they fail, they'll just take another run at it. Yeah. It doesn't, it doesn't affect their ego. Mm -hmm. And you know, like, whereas a caretaker, if you do that, like they're done, they're like, I can't do this. Yeah. I've, I've seen that with people. It doesn't fit. Um, yeah. Cause I mean, really those two are very, very strong opposites. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Kind of like the, uh, the opposite between the cowboy coder and the, uh, perfectionist, perfectionist, the, the caretaker and the rebel are on opposite ends. And it's one of those things you need both. Yeah. You know, you need, uh, here's a great example, an app that I started working on a couple of years ago. Uh, we finished a year or so ago. Uh, they had a really weird bug and normally they don't tap me on bugs for that application because it's pretty straightforward. .NET CRUD application with some business logic thrown in. This is a really weird one. So they asked me to look into it. And so I spent two or three days just sort of researching it, figuring out what was going on. And I was like, figured out it was just, you know, one of those things where I knew what I knew at the time, the way to do things wasn't the best. And uh, it took it a while, but it eventually caused a problem. So I came back with, all right, here's what it is. Here's where the problem is. You know, this is, you know, this is three options for a solution. And they, I was really proud of them. They chose to go with the longer term, like take longer to do, more effort, but do it right solution. I was like really, really happy. And so as soon as I did that, they chose that and said, all right, we're going to assign someone for you to show how to 
go in because it's a lot of tedium. We're going to assign someone for you to show it, show how to go in and make these changes. And then we're going to put you back on this like research project. Yeah. Cause I'm like, you guys know me so well. Yeah. Cause there's some people that really can <laughs> take the tedium. Like they're just there and we're going to talk about those here in a few minutes. But mm-hmm. um, speaking of people who don't have a whole lot of tedium going on, the hero is the next archetype. Um, and so this is the one that I see, like when I was writing this, I was thinking of you. Yeah, I've been this quite a bit. Yeah. Uh, a hero is the developer who's best when they're under stress and the only person who can solve the problem. So, you know, there's there's some kind of major issue and you got to go in and fix it and you can lock yourself in an office and go handle it. And it's not so much of, you know, somebody hands you the problem and locks you in like you do the rebel and, you know, gives you clear boundaries. You mm-hmm. don't get a boundary like you find the problem and you go attack it. Now, you know, one particular type is what they call the ninja coders. Like you used to see this on job adverts. It's like we're, we're trying to hire a ninja coder. It's like, so you want a feudal 14th century Japanese warrior with a sword in your office typing code. That seems like a waste. Um <laughs> <laughs> or with a naginata on the desk, you know, like, <laughs> oh so yeah. When you, when you say that, I think of that, uh, that, that meme or, or whatnot of the, the guy on the exercise bike, riding the exercise bike with the sword stabbing. Every now yeah. <laughs> it's just, I, I really, I really just hate that, that phrasing, you know, because we would never, you know, we would never refer to, we would never call somebody an immortal and say, Oh, they're like a Persian, you know, infantry man, you know, like yeah. it's just, it's completely irrelevant. And it's, it's just a really strange oh, well, you, mental it's, thing. It's only in our industry, really. Like you're not, you don't hear about, you know, ninja accountants, you know? Right. Or, <laughs> well, and that's the thing. Maybe, maybe there are, and they're just really good. <laughs> Ours are really crappy. And that's why we're the only ones that we hear about it in. Um, <laughs> You know, I don't know. There's just like, there's so many jokes that write themselves on that. Yeah. Like, I just remember when that, when there was a wave of that and I just was, oh man. Yeah. Well, and then we, what happened and the reason this stopped is people were having trouble moving out of those jobs because like, especially if you went from like a startup with this really unique job title to a more established company and they're like, what does it mean that you were a ninja coder? Well, yeah, you know? exactly. Well, I, I learned how to hide in the bushes and uh, turn, you know, pet chickens into explosives. <laughs> you know, wow. like, what do you mean? Wow. Uh, <laughs> what do you mean you don't so, want to hire me to write accounting software? I don't understand the problem. Yeah. So a lot of times the the ninja coder is um, someone who works best alone and uh, may have already solved the problem before you even approach them about it. Like they're just like, they work in the background and you don't ever really see them doing anything. You just see the effects of them doing stuff because by the time they're done with it, by the time you notice it, they're done and have moved on to something else. Yeah. Um, now, the particular sub archetype that probably fits me a lot of the time is the paratrooper. That's the last resort developer who is sent in to save a dying project because while they don't have the patience to work on long-term projects, they can get up to speed and fix something that's busted real quick. So you drop them in and they solve whatever Mm -hmm. problem they land on. Yeah. Um, I've done a lot of this. Um, 
initially not intentionally. And then later on it was intentionally. And now I try to avoid it. <laughs> um, you know, because I feel like I've kind of outgrown that mindset. It's, it is wearing on you, but these are very useful people to have around. Uh, mm-hmm. There is some risk though. Uh, the biggest risk with sitting in a hero is they may solve the problem in a way that only they can understand. Um, so you have to make sure that they train other developers well enough so that the team can still function when they leave. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's something early on in my career that I would fix stuff. And it's like, yeah, I came up with a rapid fix. I did it. It worked great. However, the next person behind me couldn't comprehend what was going on um, or why the fix I did worked. Yeah, I would say this applies to heroes and rebels. Yeah. Well, there's a lot of overlap in the traits. Um, yeah, because the, the rebel is going to find they may not be the person you send in. Like they may not be the paratrooper you send in to save a dying project. And the one of the interesting things about the the hero, especially the paratrooper subtype, is they're able to come in and understand a project really quickly, like get up to speed in in a matter of days or weeks, where it would take whereas it would take other developers months to get up to speed on that project. Yeah, and some of that's technique, by the way, too. Yeah. But I mean, every every one of these, they've got a set of ways that they approach things. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, and this one's ways that they approach things tends to lend them towards quickly comprehending a project and going. Yeah. But not necessarily keeping it maintainable all the time. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and that's that's the thing. Like with with both of them, it's you've got to get them to train the other people, train your your regular coders, and that's who we're talking about next is your regular coder. These are known as your nine to fivers. Uh, I think, was it Scott Hanselman who enjoys using the term dark matter developers? I don't know if he came up with the term, but I know he uses it a lot. I've read a few blogs where he's talked about them um, and about the importance of them, not just like negatively. Yeah. But uh, to a regular coder, good enough is the main objective. Yeah. They, they have a tendency, you know, it's kind of like infantry, right? Like part of their strength is numbers. And a lot of the numbers working has to do with conformity and with understanding that you're part of a greater whole. Yeah. Um, so instead of like, if you look at like movies about Greek combat, right? Like what was going on in 300 where the guys are like dancing around with spears and crap. That's not how they actually fought. What they did is they, crammed together in a phalanx and they had their shields in front of them and their shields guarding the guy to their left and they're stabbing around the shield, right? That's how these people work. They figure out how to work in a team very, very well. They figure out all, you know, all the ins and outs so that everybody can function as a unit. So mm-hmm. it's not, you know, like one of these versus a hero coder, the he- hero coder is going to nuke them. Yeah. 20 of these versus a hero coder, they're all going to be mad at the hero coder and they're going to be effective. Mm-hmm. And there's places where that's what you need because you just have a big honking system and you can't, you know, you, you can't get a whole bunch of hero and rebel coders in the building um, because they're going to fight with each other. Yeah. Like the, the regular coder is the bulk of your coder. These are the ones who they have the skills and the knowledge and perform well enough to get by. They may not be putting their all into it because this is not like this isn't their passion. This is what they do. It may have been their passion. Like when they were younger, it may have been their passion. And now it's just, Hey, 
you know, yeah, this was my passion. Then I got into winemaking and I'm really into winemaking and I just do this to, uh, you know, to pay for bottles, support my family and pay for bottles. Yeah. yeah. You know, and I mean, that's it, legit. It could be that, you know, and they, they may have outside interests. They, they're not the type that really goes to a lot of conferences unless like they're sent by their work. Right. And, you know, it's very easy to look at this group and go, oh, well, this is like the least cool. It's like, look, these are the guys that get everything done. Mm-hmm. You know, for the most part, you know, you, you have these other archetypes sprinkled in there to solve, you know, particular specialized situations. The regular coders handle the, you know, 95% of normal code. You yeah. know, it's like, hey, it's not super difficult. It's, it's difficult enough that it takes skill, um, but it's not you know, just ridiculous. And there's a lot of it and it has yeah. to get done. And it's just as important as the other mm-hmm. stuff. Uh, and uh, along with that, a lot of times what you'll find is you'll have someone who is like a rebel. Like uh, me, for example, I have a lot of the traits of a rebel, but I'm not always a rebel. You know, when I am not tasked with like learning something new or some or things like that at work, I tend to become a regular coder. I'm, you know, I treat it like a nine to five job. I come in, I do my job, I go home. Yeah. And then at home is when I play around with the the neat, unique stuff. And so you and may there's have a lot some, of us like that. Yeah. You may have a lot of coders who fit into another archetype, but that archetype isn't being used right now. So at the time they're they're a regular coder. And this is sort of where where most people, most coders fall is in this category. Now, I will say there's there's some one subtype that we're going to talk about here. This is the mediocre developer. And um, they may take a little bit longer to get a job done, but their slow, steady pace avoids burnout. And it helps them keep that work-life balance that we're all seeking. Right. You know, they're, they may not, you know, the mediocre developer, they're not going to go seek their own. They're not going to have their own plural site subscription, but if their job pays for it, you know, they'll do some training. You know, they're not going to sign up and go to conferences, but if their job sends them, they'll go. Yeah. And, you know, the thing is they do have a risk of becoming apathetic, especially over time, because, you know, once you know all the stuff you need to know, it gets kind of rote, you know, a lot of times. And, yeah, that's not necessarily an entirely bad thing, especially if it's driving something else. Um, this reminds me, honestly, the the way I would think about a regular coder is something, an interaction I had with a farmer way back in the day. We had a neighbor uh, up the road that had a chicken coop that had like 20, 25 birds in there. I remember mm-hmm. he, the number of birds he had was basically based around the number of people he had in his household. So I think it's like two huh. two hens per person, and then you always have eggs. Oh, that's smart, right? And no more than that. And I was like, you know, you could you could have more chickens, and you could make money selling the eggs. And what he told me is, he he looks at it, he goes, "Look, I have you know twenty chickens, and I have eggs every morning. If I had fifty chickens, I'd have eggs every morning, and I'd have foxes to deal with." Yeah. Because you scale up and you do the the harder things, you get more crap thrown at you. You got more problems. And I think regular developers, a lot of that is is the realization that, hey, I don't, you know, this isn't the end all be all of what I want my existence to be. 
this just pays for me going and doing the other things that I do. And that's completely fine. In fact, that's probably admirable compared to a lot of the workaholic burnout culture that we have going on mm-hmm. here. Yeah. I mean, we have a couple of different friends who are like this and, you know, given, given our personalities, you would think that we wouldn't really associate with nine to fivers, but yeah, some of them were, were really into it. Uh, some of them we've known since college who were really into coding like, and then they got married, they had kids, they got into other things in their life and they're like, Hey, coding isn't the primary focus of my life anymore. Yeah. You know, you grow out of it. And I think the other thing too, is a lot of them just kind of the way software development is in a lot of shops just kind of burns you down. Like you get to a point where you don't emotionally invest because you get hurt. Yeah. I could see that. You know, it's, it's not, you know, we want to make sure that we're not characterizing these people as being broken or messed up in some way. It's like, no, they just have different priorities and it's totally fine. We still need them to be there. Mm -hmm. This is not an exhaustive list of coding style archetypes. Instead, it's a group of the ones you are most likely to encounter within your career. While there are others out there, you can use this list to better understand your coworkers, managers, and friends in the development community. To be truly introspective, think about the times you have exhibited the traits of these and try to figure out which one you resemble most or most often. Uh, Use that information to set yourself up for success at your current place of employment and when you're looking for work by picking things that play to that strength. That pretty much wraps us up. What do you have this week for us for Tricks of the Trade? So. In this episode, we talked about how to understand and work with various archetypes. You have to understand, though, that these are ways to better understand ourselves and others. Um, The archetypes don't define us. If you find yourself to resemble one that you don't like um, or you just don't like the way that it is viewed or portrayed, then you can make changes to improve yourself. That's really the whole goal of this podcast is to provide you with the tools to help improve yourself. Like It's something that Will and I sort of learned the hard way, a lot of these things that we talk about. um, And one of the big things with this when we first started the the podcast was, hey, we want to make it easier for other people to grow and, you know, improve themselves. Uh, when asked, uh, I was asked today on a phone call what my podcast is about. And I said, well, it's a personal growth podcast geared towards software developers. And that's sort of the the elevator pitch that I, I give is, yeah, that's what we're here for. And that I, I want to say, we're talking about these as if they like they completely define the person. We do that specifically so that it it makes sense, like so you can understand them. But I, I just want to say here in this like kind of after piece, they don't define who we are. We define who we are. These just help us understand that definition. And if you don't like it, if you if you look at yourself and you go, oh my goodness, I'm a cowboy coder and I don't want to be a cowboy coder. I want to be, you know, a specialist. I want to be a rebel. I want to do this or that. You can make that change. You can. Like I'm not saying that one is better than the other, but if you see see yourself as one, you're like, I don't want to be this. I want to be this other one. You can make that change. I just want to use this to encourage you to 
to look at the things that we talked about and make that change. I think you kind of pointed to something there that's also very helpful. A lot of times you'll get on a team and you need to be a different archetype Mm -hmm. for the purposes of that team. Like you may need to just be a regular developer because you got other stuff going on in your life. You know, when my daughter was born, I was a regular developer. I'm sorry. I was not going to work myself to death because I was getting woken up 10 times at night. Yeah. And I've been on teams where I've had to be the maintenance guy because you've got a bunch of, you know, younger developers that are wanting to change everything and you've got to keep the system stable. Like you find the spot that you should fit in and maybe you alter the way that you approach things so that you fit there. Um, these, these are more like tools for that. If you don't like the position you're in on the team, you can always move teams. Yeah. I mean, I wouldn't really suggest doing that at this point in time because I don't know, like, I don't, I'm not sure what the job market is like out there right now. I haven't gotten a lot of recruiter calls, but I think like, I know a lot of companies aren't hiring. They've got a hiring freeze on. So yeah, I would, they don't suggest, know either. Yeah. I would not suggest moving, like leaving at this point, unless you already have something lined up, but understand when all this passes and you know as we we start coming back into the workforce again you know there are options out there and you can find yourself a team where you are in a role that you want to be in you may not be in the optimal role um right away but you can work towards that yeah or you could just start pushing in your current team for that matter that's true um that's another option you know you've got. you change the opinion they have and they're like man you know he's really really going after the new tech all of a sudden, you know, just really fired up about this. You know, a lot of times management will see that and they get excited. Yeah, that's true. And they'll work with you. That's true. Um, or they'll immediately resist you and then you know where things are. Yeah. Uh, so like I was saying, it, it doesn't matter where you are. If you, if you li- love where you are, then great, stay there. If you don't and you want to make a change, you can. These do not have to define you. That's pretty much all I've got. If you have a question or comment, please email us at neckbeards at completedeveloperpodcast.com. Our theme music is an excerpt from Standby for Titanfall by Pure Bells, available on SoundCloud and licensed through Creative Commons. The intro music for IOTs is Hillbilly Hip Hop by Jason Belcher. For references, show notes, and to sign up for weekly emails with extra tips and insights, be sure to check out the website at completedeveloperpodcast.com. You can also follow us on Twitter at CompleteDevPod and like our page on Facebook to keep up with news about the show. Catch us each week as we broadcast live, talking about what's going on in the tech world and answering listener questions. Learn more about all of our shows and groups by going to CompleteDevelopernetwork.com where you'll find links to Junior Developer Toolbox, Developer Launchpad, and our other communities. Thanks for listening. See you next time.